Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Death on the Nile. The new Death on the Nile. There's been a film of it in 1978, which was a follow-up to 1974's Murder on the Orient Express, just as this is a follow-up to Murder on the Orient Express of, well, five years previously now. Yes. Which was one of the first films we did on the podcast. Um, Those two films in the 70s had different directors. Hmm. Um, This has the same director, Kenneth Branagh, who is very much marshalling his vision of Poirot. Um... I know you feel a bit ick about him, generally speaking. He's I do. a bit of a lovey. And this confirms all my worst impressions of him, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I, I enjoyed Murder on the Orient Express. Yes, um, I know. And, uh, and I think you didn't hate it. I mean, we... Well, I didn't hate it. I just you know, thought Lumet's version was superior. Right? Yeah, sure. Um, and um, we did watch them both. And I found things that I felt were superior about Branners. I haven't seen the 1978... Death on the Nile. I imagine I would find just about every part of it superior to this one. You I would. didn't like this one very much at all. I will say we're obviously going to get into spoiler territory, and this being a whodunit, things can be spoiled. I didn't know what happened. I, I did. Hadn't come across this. Well, I knew of the story, but I, you know, uh, never read it. Had never seen any of the other versions, and I'm very proud to say that I fucking nailed it. What I would say is that it, I probably had. I had, well, I think I had. A decent chance of getting it, having seen how the whole thing plays out. Mm. Um, but you know, the moment that the murder happened, I basically, I guess, I, I led over to you and said, "I reckon this is it." Yes, and I turned out to be right. But let's say we're going to get spoiled territory from here here on in. So if you don't know what happens, you know, save yourself. But and- I also want to underline that in this kind of all-star vehicle, you know, who done it is maybe. I mean, it's not unimportant, but it's not very important. Right, because, you know, the whole films generally function as set pieces to see stars perform. That's what these films are all about, you know. So in the 1978 version, you have, like, Maggie Smith and Betty Davis, and Maggie Smith is the poor caretaker of Betty Davis. And, you know, what you're looking for is the sparring and the wit and the jokes. and the, you know, Yeah, It's absolutely. like performing their, their pieces. That's what the joy of these films is. Is that's one of the many joys, but okay. I, but it's a very it's, it's a it's a key thing that you're there to try and figure this out yourself. It's a it's a game, you know. Just, all right, you're well, playing the puzzle. Okay, I mean, aren't you? You're trying to get ahead of it before it. I mean, I to be honest, I never really feel that way about uh, the all star Agatha Christie films, though. Of course, you know they are who done it, so I, I have to grant you that. <laughs> but it's never been uh, my main interest in it. Sure. Nor I think. Uh, the reason why the films are kind of treasured, really, right? Because they are. These are films that replay on telly all o- over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. People love, you know, the, the 1970s uh, Death on the Nile. But, you know, kind of it's not because of how it functions as a whodunit that they love it. It's because of Angela Lansbury and, yeah. you know... Uh, well, it's certainly the case that you can't re-watch them for the same thrill of trying to get ahead of the game because you already know. Yeah. So the reason to re-watch them is because of the stars or because mm. of the setting or because of the interplay and mm. so on and so forth. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, let me agree with you at least that the stars are but one of the pleasures of the film. You know, in relation to these Agatha Christie, other pleasures have been... 
you know, the exotic locations, right? Mm -hmm. Or the tone and the style of the filmmaking, mm -hmm. which is often both nostalgic and ironic, yeah? So it's kind of, it's, 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 it tries to be witty and elegant, you know, about the upper crust uh, lifestyle uh, and concerns of the past. Uh, it also has a soundtrack, you know, usually kind of very elegant American songbook, yeah, Cole Porter, mm -hmm. you know, type of soundtrack. So, in relation to all of those things, I find this film a disaster. And it kind of upset me in a way, really. Like, you know, so it's one thing that I, I thought, well, you know, it, it was two over two hours and it felt like five, which is true. I think I told you that earlier. But aside from that, you know, aside, so it wasn't just being bored, but I think it kind of upset me because <laughs> the filmmaking is so poor. It never achieves a consistent tone, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, the choice of music in relation to what you see is so badly chosen, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, I really like the music. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of blues. That, you know, they're very well sung, you know. But it's completely at odds with that, you know, tinkly kind of upper crust uh, caviar eating, yeah, cruise lifestyle. And I don't think a point is made of it. Yeah, like, you know, it just feels like a bad choice. It's not that you think, oh, the filmmaker is trying to tell us something by this choice of music mm. in, 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 in opposition to what we're being shown. So such the, the other half of the music is the score, mm. which I noticed more than I did the blues, to be honest. I, I, I think it had, a bigger, it had a bigger part to play throughout the film. And I found that also often badly matched to the image overbearing really mm. you know too too heavy and and sometimes there was a point i forget exactly what it was there was a point where the film should have been trying to get a little bit funny it was playing a slightly funny scene but the music was staying kind of dark mm. this is just this isn't, this ain't right i mean i think the a unity of tone for the film and certainly for a film of this style is kind of imperative you need it right mm. and what you have in this film is people acting in different registers. Yeah, none of them of which are necessarily bad. The performers are all good. Mm. But, you know, the film has to achieve a consistent tone, right? And if you have people, you know, somebody doing it as a realist drama, you know, somebody doing it as like a film noir, somebody doing it as high comedy, mm. like it just doesn't work. Everyone's acting on a completely different register. And that is the director's fault, right? And that is generally what he's good at, yeah? Because, you know, he's an actor. But this time, he's such a fucking egomaniac, Branagh, mm. right? And it's evident in the filmmaking. This film has no need whatsoever for the scene of World War One. No. That's completely extraneous. It's actually, it's it's actual myth-making. Yeah. It's myth-making of Poirot. So the thing that I liked about his first film, The Murder on the Orient Express, is how much of a central character, an important character, it made Poirot. Because it had this thing about Poirot needing order in his life. Mm. And justice being order and this sort of thing, and it starts off with all this, and then by the end of that film, and I won't go into spoil it here, but we, you know, we, talk, we covered it. By the end of that film, he's had he, he's gone through a case that has broken his perspective on what justice should be. Mm. So I, it was kind of it was important to him, and there was that last shot that I remember of the pulling away from the scene and the camera as in pulling away from the sky, and the train pulls off in one direction, he drives off in the other, and it's like this case you feel it has left a mark on him. Here, you know, that, that I felt... I mean, you didn't like it, right? You said, again, it should be all about the case and so on, which is what we saw in the 74 version that we watched. 
Um, but I felt it was it felt appropriate. It felt worked through. Here, it is full-on myth-making. He's a hero from the start. He's a hero because he recognises that he that if they attack three hours earlier than they're meant to, then they can win this ambush and so on and so forth. And he's done that with his detective skills mm. because he can see what the birds in the sky can see and so on. And the moustache is given a backstory that he's got it from his corporal who he failed to save. And then he, and he has this tortured thing going on because my ugly face means my love will leave me. Mm. Goes, oh, and it's all in black and white like Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, who cares? I mean, you know, the, uh, in these films normally, the films are about the people. Yeah. You know, kind of Poirot or Marple are the people who solve the crime. They're there, you know, at odd moments to catch conversations, to put pieces of information together. But the drama is really played out through the other people. Whereas this kind of inverts it. We get too much Poirot. Mm. It begins and ends with him, right? And kind of there's no need for all of that. And we don't know enough. Yeah, about the other people. And the and the people are not given their moments. No. Yeah. You know, the whole point of having an all-star cast is, you know, that each of these big stars of yesterday or whatever <laughs> come in, they do their turn, they please the public, mm. you know, and they leave the scene for someone else to come and do the same. And then they all get together at the end to twinkle together. Mm. He doesn't give them a chance. I mean, Annette Benning completely wasted. She's not given a single moment, Right. And the, and the same for all the others. I mean, I think Gal Gadot, who's terrible in it, but at least she gets a, a visual moment as Cleopatra, right? Well, she gets her intro as well, the, you know, in that silver dress, which I think is a shot in the trailer as well. Okay. That's a moment, you know. So I all... know, but it's a moment of presentation. It's not a moment for the actor. Oh, so you mean? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I found it, like, completely misjudged from top to bottom, through egocentrism, I think, you know, if Branagh had been more concerned with presenting the potential pleasures of the peace rather than to think of how he could figure in it, mm. right, it would be much better. It would be very different and much better. We're very much going to get into spoiler territory immediately. I'm going to say, who done it? Mm. Um, because I mentioned that I worked out. I, I, I felt it was a strong guess when mm. I said it um, that it was going to be Army Hammer and Emma Mackey together, mm-hmm. who were the original lovers, and then Gal Gadot has come in and supplanted her, mm-hmm. taken her place. Six weeks later, she's getting married to Army Hammer. This is their honeymoon. Emma Mackey is intruding on it. She's been stalking them. Eventually, they're trying to escape on the boat, on the Nile. Mm-hmm. And then you get this scene that is Gal Gadot has gone to bed. Emma Mackey, Army Hammer are arguing. And I, and I thought, at this, like, this, is, this is for show, this argument, I felt. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt it could be. You know, and as it turns out, it really was. Um, but still, it's like it's not completely obvious that it's them who did it. But I think one of the reasons that I was able to kind of point at them quite quickly is that I don't think they're given a disproportionate amount of attention. But it's certainly true that no one else is given enough attention for you to think that they're a credible suspect. So you've got the doctor, you've got the the wealthy woman who wants to be a communist, you've got her friend, turns out lover. Um, who she's kind of keeping. You've got the accountant. You've got Book, who mm. is Poirot's friend and his mother. And they're all given a shadow of a reason to want Gal Gadot's character dead. But none of them is, is sufficient for you to think they're anything more than a secondary character. Mm. So even though, like, it's not... You know, you haven't remember me worked out all the details of why Army Hammer... It's very clear why Emma Mackey would want Gal Gadot dead. But the reason that I thought Army Hammer's in on it is because... Well, it's too obvious for it to be her on her own. It's just, it's the obvious answer, and you don't get obvious answers in these stories. And the other reason is 
that the film is constantly telling you, it's so hammering it into you through dialogue that love makes people do things. Love, love, love. Love will do this and love will do that. And the film starts off with this thing about love and what it's done to Poirot. And, and so the idea that those two are still in love and in on it together was quite... It felt, like, it felt a very obvious way for the film to be able yes. to progress. So while I do give myself credit for getting it, I think I'm, I'm proud that I got it and I'm happy... It doesn't make you a genius. It doesn't make me a genius, right? It's not, it's not the hardest mystery to solve. You see, in the 1978 version, Mia Farrow plays that role. Yeah. Right? And the film presents it differently. So the preamble is actually Mia Farrow going to her best friend, yeah, and uh, asking her for a job for her husband in her English estate. Yeah, and you set up a series of relationships there because obviously they're poor, they need the money, she's dependent on, you know, her friend's generosity. Uh... And then, obviously, he marries someone else. And from that point on, Mia Farrow, who's really, I think, a great actress, yeah? Mm. And she's got this, these translucent eyes, right? And she appears in the film as something wild and frenzied, right? So in the scene at the temple, yeah, uh, the way I remember it, it is not the accountant who throws the rock, or maybe he does. But what you see is the image of, you know, Mia Farrow glaring down, yeah? Like, so she becomes this presence in the film, this mad presence. So when the shot happens, you kind of believe it, mm. yeah? Uh, it has a different, a different weight, really. Um, it was and, all played very blankly here. Yeah, it was yeah. all played very blankly. Um, and also, the film was so plodding and unstylish. I mean, you know, there are these moments where... You know, you're seeing the you're seeing Poirot speak to uh, is a book and someone else. Anyway, and they're on the boat, and you're seeing it from the outside. And Poirot is encased in one Art Deco fragment, mm. and the other guys are encased in another fragment, and another guy's in the middle fragment. You know, and you think, why? It's when like, they're talking to the accountant. Yeah, and you think. What's, what's this expression? Why? Yeah. Right? And actually, for most of the film, it's like the, the, family, the camera swirls here on the boat and then it swirls there. Yeah. And you think, why? It's not creating pace. It's not creating rhythm. It's not evoking anything, you know, except kind of, you know, moving. Yeah? Uh, it's, it's the same problem that we have with Belfast. It's, it's the same, but much worse. Complete lack of effect from these compositions. Or The thing, the thing is that the, the compositions aren't even interesting or skillful no I mean there were moments where I thought this the whole film is shot head on there's not even an interesting choice of angles even when people are spying on something that is being said below mm. right like you just have like you know all of a sudden Poirot kind of looking and you see what's happening below a little bit lower on the frame this I mean it's just such banal stupid unimaginative filmmaking and this combined with the egocentricity that dictates the structure of the piece, which is completely wrong, and the lack of generosity, because I think it is a, a lack of actorly generosity mm. that prevents all the other stars from having their moment. None of them really do. The only one, I think, who really shines is the Sofio Canado character. Yeah, The, the jazz singer. The Blue jazz singer. singer, you know. Everybody else, I mean, they get dialogue and so on, but they don't get their moment. They don't get their joke. They don't, yeah. Mm. You know, whereas like I can, I can recite bits from the 1978 film, you know, with David Niven and Angela Lansbury or, you know, Angela Lansbury saying, oh, hello, Mr. Porridge. You know, lovely to meet you. Yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, everybody's given their moment, right? Uh, and here mm. you come out 
without the pleasure of the star having done their bit, whatever it might be. Mm. Yeah, their opportunity to shine. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think it's kind of, yeah, a lack Selfish. of generosity. Yeah. And the reason, the only reason really that Sophia Canedo gets uh, a more of a moment or set of moments is because she's the character Poirot's interested in. Exactly. <laughs> she gets scenes with Poirot. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Even Army Hammer, who, when the film was made, Probably he and Gal Gadot were the biggest stars in the whole outfit, you know. But he's not given a moment to shine either. He's given lots of time, right? Uh, he probably is given more time on screen than anybody but Poirot. But he's not given, you know, a bit of business, a line of dialogue, you know, a shot. Or, you know, something that his fans would come away with thinking, oh, wasn't Army Hammer fabulous? Yeah. So he probably doesn't have many fans at the moment, but <laughs> it's another story. Well, um <laughs> This, uh, yeah, this is made before he was a controversial figure, I think, because mm. they push back the release date. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, French and Saunders are in it together as a pair for the first time in donkey's years. And, you know, maybe to Americans that means nothing, but to British people, that's they, they're very, very fondly remembered. Yes, um, and, and it, they're funny. And, yeah, and I, I mean, everyone remembers them for Ab Fab or for their skit shows or whatever. They are funny women. Not a laugh to be had in this show. No, well, that's the thing. They, they should be able to bring that. But they, and in fact, Jennifer Saunders. I mean, they. You can see on paper how the attempt is there to make them funny because Jennifer Saunders is this, like I say, ridiculously wealthy person who believes in socialism, communism, and so on, um, and she's disparaging to all the people who are just as rich as she is. And then you've got her kind of, uh, well, her nurse as she's playing essentially uh, initially, um, who's you know, kind of like downtrodden or whatever. Um, and that should be there should be comic sparks flying mm. in that and nothing and it's not even chemistry between them. So when it turns out that they're actually lovers and you know I'll keep your secret and so on and so mm. forth, you don't feel you no. don't feel the, the passion that, of that either. And that is the director's fault because we've seen French and Saunders create that spark and that funniness and yeah. so on on their own time and time and time and time again. So you know why Brana can't get it out of them is like clearly his problem and really because he doesn't much want. To Russell Brand I quite liked, but he's got hardly anything to do. Yeah. I thought he gave a good performance. Yes. As this very quiet, you know, ex-boyfriend doctor. He's got this secret of his own that he's actually a lord, but it's very plausible that, you know, he's a doctor, goes by doctor because that's his own, he's earned that himself. But, you know, it, it's, something about, it's interesting that it's something about the character that I liked. And, and basically, certainly until they got on the boat... I was thinking, I hate all of these people so much. I want them all <laughs> dead. You know, Jesus Christ, this is fucking intolerable. It was boring and intolerable, and I just hated all the people. You know, just I mean, all the. Pri- I know the film is playing on privilege, talking about privilege, but still, just the privilege, and and I hated them all. And then you go onto the boat, and eventually, once the murder happened and things started moving in that direction, I found it all a little bit more interesting, um, and I hated, I suppose, the people a little bit less, but. He was the only one who I thought, and actually he's like a nice person. I, I, I didn't mind being in his company, Russell mm. Brand. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a disaster of a film. What did you think of all the shots of Egypt? Of Well, this is the thing. Um, these are things that I did not hate at all. And you mentioned at one point, I think a little unfairly, you said, oh, it's too dark, this film. Yeah. Which was when uh, Rose Leslie was looking at the necklace early on. Well, it was just at the beginning of the film, though. I think that was the projection possibly more than anything else. Maybe. I felt the film lacked luminosity, you know. Well, I didn't I think it see. was too dark. I didn't, you see. I mean, it was clearly a digital projection because it was incredibly crisp. Um, and it was better for that. I, and 
and you do get these shots of Egypt of of what the pyramids early on and you know the boat on the Nile and these those kind were of very bright fields and things which are, but not just bright but contrasted beautifully because the dark is very dark as well the contrast between light and dark was beautiful well and the, and the the richness of the orange and red, the hues of the sunset. I thought they looked very pretty, but I thought they were all awful as well. I thought it was like, you know, the CGI prettiness, right? Uh, it felt really false. And, and actually, I thought the whole use of Egypt, you know, the, the, the peasants on the boats and, you know, the crocodile eating the birds, and I thought it was all trash. <laughs> it's a terrible film. It's you know. really bad. I was really surprised because... The actual resolution of the crime is such a disappointment as well, really, because the thing that was so interesting about the resolution of the crime in Murder on the Orient Express, not going to spoil it, is that it was different to... It was, it was like, conceptually different to what you would expect the resolution to be. Whereas here, the resolution is pretty basic. It's pretty bland. Yeah. Well, as I said, you know, I think for me, uh, normally in this type of film, that is a minor thing. Because, you know, what I remember is, like, you know, the beginning of Death in the Nile. Well, the preamble is what I told you. But then when they get on the boat, it is really like each star is making an entrance, right? Mm -hmm. And you see Betty Davis, and she gets a line, and she starts bickering with Maggie Smith. And then the next set of characters come on, and they're Mm -hmm. all given something. And then at the end of the film, after Poirot solves the crime, they get off the boat, and it's like each of the stars is saying goodbye. They all get a little bit of business again, Mm -hmm. right? You know, rather than this dark piece of shit that we see here (laughs) which was like so dark and then you think it's over and then you were saying it can't be over you know uh what did you say because Poirot yeah so they all get off the boat and they do have their little saying goodbye bit but none of them is particularly impressive and then he flirts with the singer who he's been flirting with you know well he's not been flirting but he's been been struggling to get his words out around her and Mm. clearly and she's been flirting with him he's got a crush on her yeah she's been flirting with him and he clearly likes her um and he try. He says perhaps, and then he can't finish the sentence, and she walks off. Mm. And you said, "Oh, just, yeah." The camera pulls back as it did in Murder on the Orient Express, but rather than just pulling back, it fades to London six months later. And you said, "Jesus Christ, this film won't end." And I said, well, <laughs> "It can't end on him just failing to flirt with someone." No, so it <laughs> ends on a much darker note. Yeah. on some dive. <laughs> And then, I mean, for everything that I just tried to say about it, about it not being visually dark, which I think is true, it ends back in that bar in London, but, it, you know, there's no dark. light, she's singing there, and the shot is, like, his back is to the camera, she's in the middle of the frame, there's all this black space the on the right. Shot the, ever. It's really amateurish. The camera's shaking, and it's just fading out, and I'm thinking, fucking hell! Like, I know, I guess, I get that they tried to, you know, they could, they realised we can't end it on this bad maybe, flirting. Maybe it's shaking at his emotion. Oh. <laughs> it's trying to say no. There is a little bit of hope in this relationship, possibly with, but it's it's awful. It's, it's awful. a terrible shot in every sense of the word. Mm. It's amateurish. It's badly done. They couldn't do two takes of it just to fucking frame it better. It's terrible. Oh, it's, te- oh, it's awful. Uh, it's an awful film, and yet you know, lots of my friends seem to like it. I can't imagine. Well, I like don't know. you know, maybe they've been watching too much shit. There's, there, there, I did see all. This, people talking about it on Facebook, and one of the things they were saying was how much they liked the David Suchet one on TV in 2004, I think, yeah. which is interesting. Um, because, you know, the ones I guess you expect to be referenced are the film ones. 
But um, that sounds an interesting one to have a look at because people were really, you know, no one said that about Murder on the Orient Express, I don't think. I, I love the 78 version because it's full of treasured moments. You know, it's like the moment where Angela Lansbury dances a tango with David Niven is one <laughs> of my all-time favourite film bits, you know. Yeah? Yes. You know, she plays like this 1920s writer of, you know, what are obviously like erotic thrillers, right? Really trashy, but bestsellers, right? <laughs> and Angela Lansbury is the whole thing, you know, mm. the shake under the palms. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, so I find it very charming, really. Uh, and, and with wonderful star turns. I mean, Maggie Smith and Betty Davis are marvelous. Uh, and then there's something also about the younger people who were not stars then, but like, you know, Jane Birkin, you know, who plays the French maid uh, in the original. Like, they're so fresh-faced and handsome and sexy, and they're all in their 20s, Simon McCorkendale, and I think, is it Lois... I forget, Lois Clark or something like that? Uh, you know, and so they just look, like, you know, pretty in that age, whereas there's something also about the casting. I think Arnie Hammer's too old. You know, I think he must be, like, close to 40, and really he should be someone in their 20s, mm -hmm. right? Um, so... So also everyone here, you notice how uh, basically everyone English was playing something else, and everyone American was playing English in this. Yeah. Like they're all over the shop. I know. <laughs> so um, anyway, I think it's a disaster. And it doesn't make you feel any any shock, surprise, or anything like. I mean, even that final it, and scene. And it doesn't charm. The <laughs> final scene that I always want to see, which is where he gets everyone. No one in this room may leave till they accounts for their whereabouts. The mm. evening last. Mm. I love that shit. No, that's got nothing here. He just he, he basically he points to the accountant, says because what he's doing is explaining each crime in turn. Because these little crimes along the way to the he big. He does crime. say lock the doors though. Yeah, they do lock the doors. That's quite fun. Um, but yeah, he's he's like he's giving uh, he's giving explanations for the little crimes that have occurred along the way. So like so there's the rock falling, you know, and how did that happen? And he explains that. But then no no no, it wasn't you who killed the, the mm. and he eventually gets to it and. Okay, I, you know, I figured it out, so well done me. But there's no surprise to it. And then, not only that, they die together, right? So they're, like, they're never going to be able to escape. They've got guns pointed at them now because everyone, it turns out, has got a pistol. And so while Army Hammer is trying to run away, and can, trying to convince that they can run away, even though he's still got a shattered leg, uh, Emma Mackey decides that they can die together. And she shoots him in the back and through him shoots herself. Mm. But that little gun, they've made such a point about this gun being a pea shooter yeah. that when she shoots through him, I thought, oh, she survived this then. Is she going to... So it's not even... You know, and then she dies with this look on her face like this. And it's just... He's very ungallant towards uh, the women. You know, because there were some shots where uh, the young Miss Otterborn, I forget what the actress's name Letitia is. Letitia Wright. Yeah, Letitia Wright. You know... From some angles, she's very beautiful, right? And from some angles, she's not. And I was shocked at the amount of times that the, the, the shot Branagh chose was the one with her face looking towards him like this, right? So that her face all seems like very square and unattractive. And that's, I think, a real betrayal. Yeah, she has kind of a square jaw that he yeah. accentuates at times. Exactly, right. Yeah. So, so you know... When she's shot from below, I guess, when she's on the stairs, and he's down below, and she's up top, so then the cameras are on the angle as well. Mm. It's not that flattering. Yeah, and I think, you know, it could all could have been done different if he'd been more careful of his, of his performers. Mm. Uh, so, anyway. Yeah, wait till it's on TV. It's a piece of trash. And you could, you know... 
It might be okay if you're reading the newspaper and it's on. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just not not very good, really. We were looking forward to it. We mm. were you as well. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. So. Um, I have oh, well. a weakness for this kind of stuff, but this is too bad even for me. Well, I think Kenneth Branagh this year has had this, and he's had Belfast, and neither was up to scratch. And But uh, Belfast is very likeable, though. Well, I had that, but it's still not good. No, it's still not good. And I was reading on Wikipedia not long ago that he's got a, a Bee Gees biopic, apparently, coming out <laughs> from the year. <laughs> and kill my, your father. <laughs> what is it? My dad's a mental Bee Gees fan, and through him, I'm a Bee Gees fan as well. Uh-huh. And you know, I, and I've always felt the Bee Gees don't get enough respect, really. Mm. Like you know, the Beatles are huge, and the Rolling Stones are huge, and all this. But the Bee Gees, they're like, oh, people go, yeah, that disco band, you know, fucking. Mm. But they've had a massive long career, and they're incredibly talented songwriters, very successful mm. songwriters for a lot of different people, and so on. They've had all these wonderful, beautiful well, good love luck songs. Reviving their reputation with Branagh. Yeah, <laughs> now Kenneth Branagh is going to be telling their story. And it's all going to be plinky plonky. Oh, aren't uh-huh. they lovely? Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, don't go see it. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>